If you would take your Bibles, turn with me to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8. We'll read verses 21 through 23 this morning as we continue to follow the preparations being made by Ezra and this second group of exiles, 80 years removed now from the first group that returned at the beginning of Ezra, second group of of exiles to, to head back to Jerusalem. number of preparations are being made, and so we'll focus our attention really on what I would call preparation of the heart here in verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahaba, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road. Because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him. But his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. It was the spring of 1999. I was the ripe old age of 25. I was in my next to last semester of seminary, which meant... I knew almost everything. (laughs) I was certainly ready to take the reins of a church and to pastor the people of God into ever greater kingdom work. And and if you could have eavesdropped in those days and listened to, to my conversation along with my seminarian peers... You would have heard similar language. We were ready. Oh, we, we talked a big game. We, 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 would have, we would have made clear how we were going to go into a church and what we were going to tell those deacons to do and, and how we were going to manage business meetings and what we were going to do with committees. We didn't necessarily mean for it to come off this way, but what it sounded like was there was some church out there just waiting for our revival so the Spirit could come too. I don't think all of it, by the way, was just pure pride. Some of it age, some of it the nature of just the education that we had received. And some of it, I think, did come out of a, of a good heart. I mean, I think we wanted to, to help churches and, and to see churches grow, but it's, it's one of those almost cliche moments. It's, it's easy to say, right? It, it's easy in a moment like that to declare what you're going to do, and how you're going to act. So, spring of 1999, in the midst of all of my knowledge 
and genius and skill and leadership ability. It was going to be Abraham, Moses, Paul, Scott Gleason. All right? That's, that was going to be, that was going to be the way things were going to go. I was serving at a church. I was part-time minister of youth and children. What other experience do you need, right? So that's, that's what I was doing. And, and I just knew I, I had surrendered to God's call when I was 17, right? Eight years is plenty of time to get ready to pastor a church, right? So I just knew. So I was destined for this. I get a call. Pastor I'm serving under is going to resign. In fact, I get a call on Friday night. He's going to resign as soon as the Sunday morning service is over, and I will be preaching on Sunday night. The talk wasn't quite as bold at that point. Oh, there was talk to the Lord. Two months later, I'm sitting with the search committee. The search committee at that church, they weren't going to get any resumes. They weren't interested in doing any of the work that normal search committees would do. They offered me the job of being their pastor, and I told them this is a terrible idea. Isn't it funny how just a few months can change things? I'd never had a full-time job. <laughs> I was single. I'd certainly, I mean, I, I'd been part-time minister of youth and children. I'd been an intern. I'd done summer youth work. I was, I'd been in seminary. But beyond that, are you sure you want to hand the reins over to someone like me? Looking back on it now, I would never have encouraged a church to do what this church did. But they said, we don't care. We want you to be pastor. And, and I was privileged to be able to serve those people for 10 years. And in fact, all of you should be very thankful they got the first blow, all right? I mean, you, you think this is something, all right? You should have been around then, okay? Because I'm pretty sure for the next two years, the number one phrase that came out of my mouth was this, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was supposed to, and fill in the blank. With whatever it was. They were good. They were, they were good to me, good people. And, and, and we, we did enjoy, uh, you know, this, this uh, kind of two-way discipling kind of relationship. But I bring this up because it's one of those moments. And I'm not alone in this moment, maybe as the specific pastor thing, all right? But probably all of you in some way or another, at least if, if you have any life behind you, all right? You've been in one of those moments where you talked a big game, but then when it came to it, and you had to act on what you said you could do, that's when it gets serious, right? We have phrases for this. We, we might say something like, when the rubber meets the road, right? Some might say, well, why don't you, this is kind of different, but maybe kind of the same. Why don't you put your money where your mouth is? All right. So yeah, maybe a little cruder version, but kind of the, the same kind of idea. When push comes to shove, seems like a violent one. Nonetheless, all right. It's one. Now there's a spiritual one though we could use in the light of all this which sounds better, and that is putting feet to faith. 
We all find ourselves maybe in those moments where where we have life change kind of moments. But then as God's people, we have this this specific kind of of feature here where where we we, we are dealing with the responsibility we have to live our lives in light of what we believe about God, to put our theology into practice, to put feet to our faith. And my guess is there's a number of circumstances in which we can talk a big talk where we've got a good theological game going until life hits us in the nose. Circumstances arise. And we're called to act on our faith. Do we believe what the Bible says about God? Do we believe what God says about Himself in the Bible? Are we willing to act on these things? See, that's that's where these exiles find themselves. As we continue to look at Ezra chapter 8, and really Ezra chapters 8 to 10 through the end of the book, we find Ezra and his leaders and these exiles who unfortunately are just a fraction of the number of exiles actually living in Persia. At best, we've got 5,000 people returning The call has gone out. We can go back to the promised land. The temple has been rebuilt. We can live as God's people under God's law, faithful to God's covenant. And that exciting news generated 5,000 people. It didn't even generate all the helpers that they needed. Because you can talk a big game, but when it's time to put feet to your faith, that can be a challenge. So this is where these exiles find themselves. Here they are. Ezra has gathered them at the river, Ahava, Ahava, which is in Babylon. All right, so they've not left yet. They've gathered at the river for the purpose of preparation. They've got to get some plans together. So it's a business meeting, camping trip, all right? And they have gathered there for three days. They're camped out, making sure they have kind of all their ducks in a row. They've got everything they need in in order to, to, to... do what God has called on them to do. And this is not something to be taken lightly. These people are about to embark on a significant journey. They're not going from downtown Newburn to James City. They're going from downtown Newburn and the Noose River to the Mississippi. They're going to Memphis, all right? If you want to put all this in context, imagine me saying next week, we're going we're gonna to meet down at Union Point, all right, gazebo, all right, all right down there, uh, and I've, I've got a trip planned for us, all right? We're going to camp out there for three days, uh, so we're going to need to get some stuff together, but then we're going to hit the road, all right? We're going to hit 70, and then we're going to eventually get to 40, and we're going to walk, we're going to walk from here to the Mississippi River. Who's with me? It's going to be a lonely trip, probably. Am I paying? See, I knew Bill would go. You'd go with me, right, Bill? All right. So, so th- this, this is a significant commitment. So they, again, they want to make sure they've got everything ready. And what I find interesting about chapter 8 and really the rest of the book, but we're focusing specifically on this chapter and the elements that come up 
is, is what does God expect from his people? If people are going to put feet to their faith, what needs to be in place in order to do this well? How can we fulfill God's expectations for us? What does that look like? We've already looked at two of them. And so those, I think the blanks are already filled in, but they're going to be on the screen. We looked at the issue of leadership. All right, so, so, we, so we noted how he got, he gathered Ezra, gathered leading men, made sure he had heads of households ready to go. And then last week we looked at number two, and that was service. So we noted as they've camped, there's a problem. There's not enough Levites. In other words, there's not enough servants. There, there's, there's not enough people to, to make sure that wheel can spin, all right? They, in order to do the temple services correctly, they need not only God-qualified leadership, but committed, qualified servants. So they go and find them. Then there's a third quality, and I think one that really gets to the essence of this. Well, one, one that I think is absolutely essential. It's not going to sound really shocking to anybody here. Something, though, that God's people must possess. And that is devotion. If we're going to be an effective people of God, if we're going to fulfill His expectations for us, if we're going to live as His people under His covenant committed to his ways and purposes in the world, we must love him supremely. And then that means that everything we do, we, we have this worldview that everything we do is, is first funneled through this, that we desire, we don't just desire, we desperately need God's wisdom and direction in order to put feet to our faith. So notice, notice how this plays out. Again, the passage we just read, verse 21. Notice what Ezra does. He says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from Him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. So after getting leaders together, after cataloging the heads of households, after getting Levites, Nethanim, which is another people group that helped with the work of the temple, after getting all of these very fundamental aspects in place, he leads them in a prayer meeting. Ezra calls the people to do two things. He's going to call them to fast and pray. Now, one thing you'll note, Ezra does not call on the people to fast and pray in the midst of or presence of conflict or tribulation or trial. It's not when they get into a mess and Ezra's sitting here with 5,000 people in the middle of the desert fussing at him like some other leaders of God's people had experienced in times past, right? What does he do? He first begins by bringing them all together in this act of humility, humbling themselves before the Lord to seek Him, His purposes, His blessing, His protection, His provision, to fast and to pray. Now, we're, we're familiar with fasting, probably, at least a lot of folks in the room. It wouldn't be the first time you've heard the concept, though it's not really something we practice as much as maybe previous generations had, and some other um, traditions among the church today. But, but fasting was an important part, both Old and New Testament. 
Jesus gives instructing on fasting in the midst of instruction on both prayer and giving, right? We pray, we give, so why don't we also fast? It's all in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 6. It talks about it all. And, and as pastors love to point out in those passages, he talks about when you pray, when you give, and when you fast. Not if you give, if you pray, or if you fast, but in the moment you do it. So fa fasting is a good discipline. That There's no laid out New Testament requirement for these things, but it, it is beneficial. And without going into a whole lot of detail, but, but fasting is really, really a pretty simple idea. You forego, in particular, food. I, I can't find any evidence they ever fasted from anything else, by the way. More than just a minute, but I don't find any evidence in the Old Testament, New Testament, that, that they would have understood fast in any other way. They would have fasted from food for a period of time. As, as kind of a twofold kind of thing. One, as a way to say, I don't live on bread alone, right? In other words, God sustains me. Even the act itself is an act of trust. I trust God. I recognize that spiritual realities are of greater heft and value than even the most basic of physical realities. But at the same time, it, it provided opportunity to pray to give intentional time to seeking the Lord for specific things. Think especially in a time frame where there weren't ready-to-eat meals, all right? HelloFresh was not delivering, all right, back in the first century, and they didn't have microwaves, uh, they, they didn't have ovens. I mean, they did have ovens, but they had the kind that you had to go out and get wood, right, and light things on fire, all right? And that's how you had to cook inside of them, so they, they did do that. So it took a very long time. They didn't go down to the pig, and uh, they wouldn't have done that anyway. But they didn't go down to the local grocery store, right, and pick up whatever cut they wanted. Okay. So if they're eating meat, it was in the backyard uh, before they ate it, all right? It was buttercup in the backyard, and then they, so then they were having it on the dinner. So this, this, this afforded them a lot of opportunity. If they're going to fast, it's not just they're fasting from food, but they also are fasting from the preparatory requirements related to it. So if, if you and I fast from, say, lunch, what does that mean? Is that, what, 30 minutes? <laughs> so I'm just pointing this out, that fasting was a commitment, not only physically, but time-wise. So they're going to give themselves to this. And so this is what he calls them to. We're gonna, he doesn't really give us a time frame per se, but that they were going to fast to seek the Lord. And that's its benefit. Helps you remove that kind of distraction, freeing up that time as a way to dedicate your time to prayer. I would encourage you, by the way, to consider making this a part of your own spiritual growth. At times, I have called us to days of prayer and fasting. I did it a couple of years ago. Probably should do that again. Uh, but you don't need me to tell you, all right? I mean, you can pray and fast uh, to, on, on your own. Now, now there, there are those who might fast from other things. I understand there could be some in certain health situations where, you know, you got medicine, you got to take with food, all right? So you could pick a certain meal, if you're able to, and fast from that. Some people may fast from other things, um, it may not quite be the same theological imagery, but some people may fast from technology, me media in some way. Um, there could be any number of other things people could fast from. But, but I, I would commend that because it is, it is a way to demonstrate devotion. We're going to give specific time 
to thinking about God, his purposes for our lives. And you notice specifically what they're doing. They're, they're humbling themselves before God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and our possessions. So the direction that we need to go, it's really that simple. And when he says our little ones, there is some debate about that phrase because the word itself can have like a variety of meanings. I mean, the, the, our natural gut reaction to that is he's talking about children, and that could for sure be a, at least a part of it. Some suggest that really the word little ones has a broader meaning, and it means um, the, those who are most at risk among us. So it, it would include... Um, people with health issues. It could include the elderly. You know, we need to remember that of the 5,000 people returning, these are not all seasoned, trained, conditioned military men who, who were ready then to make a thousand-mile march. Quite frankly, what I just said a minute ago, if we had to march from here to James City, that's going to be hard. That's going to be hard for me. All right, I'll tell you right now, okay? I know you look at me and think, no, you're a bastion of health, but I'm really not. And, and so that would be hard, but think a thousand miles. So this is a journey, and it's not just the physical journey. There are dangers along the way, far more dangerous than Interstate 40. There are very real, literal threats to life and health. Uh, by that, we mean people who would not hesitate to overtake the group, to rob the group, to steal children from the group. That's, that's the kind of dangers we're talking about. So they need to take this really seriously. So they want to know, what's the right way for us to go with this, with our, with our little ones, with our possessions? Now, at, fir at first reading that, we think, okay, yeah, we get that. We need to know the direction. But notice there's a specific way in which Ezra is praying. Verse 22. This fills out the reason for this. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road. You might recall the king had made it clear in chapter 7 that the bottom line of Artaxerxes' proclamation, Ezra had at his disposal whatever he needed to get to Jerusalem and get things cranking. Whatever he needed. Which would have included... A military escort. Trained, seasoned military men on horses, right? Those ready to, to, to go before, to come behind, ride along the side. Those, those who would provide security detail for such a massive group of people. So this is what had been offered. But Ezra says, I was ashamed to ask for this. Why? Saying, and those with the rest of verse 22, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. Ezra has to put feet to his faith. He'd already boasted to the king, and that shouldn't be taken like in a Negative. He's not being prideful. He had given testimony of his theology and what he truly believed. He believed God would provide. This was God's call. This was God's plan. Artaxerxes may have announced it. He may have given laws about it. He may have provided resources for it. But this is all about the good hand of God 
upon his people. That phrase shows up, and we've noted it again and again and again in this story. The good hand of God was upon them, leading and guiding. This, was, this, this involves God's promise and provision, his protection. This is, this is God guaranteeing for them all, all that they need would be given so that they can be successful in the journey he's called them to. So Ezra's saying, I've already testified to this. I've testified that God's going to take care of us. Now, I do, I do want to say, don't take this to mean that God's solution to your problem is always going to be supernatural. Or, in other words, sometimes you can take... There are times where, where the simplest, most practical, maybe even easiest way out is the way God wants you to take, all right? It doesn't always happen that way. In fact, may, maybe not even often. But d- don't assume that he's saying it would be wrong for all people at all times and in all places to have taken the king up on his offer. That's not what this is suggesting. Instead, he's, he's saying though specifically in his circumstances for this period of time, he, he's already testified. Here's how God works for those who seek Him. And that phrase, those who seek Him, shouldn't be taken shallowly like seekers of God. That should be taken as those who pursue God with a passion, those who love Him, those who serve Him, those who follow Him, those who obey Him. It is a strong and robust word. What he's saying is, I've already given testimony to Artaxerxes that for, for those who love God with all their heart, soul, and strength... God's good hand will be upon them. And I've already said, for those who would forsake God, what they can expect from Him is the hand of His judgment. God's wrath for those who had turned their back. So Ezra really is setting this up and wanted to, right, he's only got two options here. He has made this very black and white. Follow God's guidance and direction, or I forsake it. And so this is what he's praying about. And I, I would suggest, by the way, in the midst of this kind of praying, he's also making it clear to the people who have agreed to follow him a thousand miles across the Middle East. He's saying to them, here's the deal. We're going to be on our own, at least from a human perspective. We're going to be on our own. And so verse 23 then says this, So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. Now, we won't get to that answer just yet. God did answer their prayer, but I'll go ahead and tell you, the answer to the prayer was, go on your journey without help from the king. No military, no horsemen. Yeah, they're going to take resources, but, but the, the escort, nope. They entreated of God, and God answered their prayer. God gave them the response, and that response was that they are to move forward in faith. In other words, what's God expecting from His people? Real devotion. Devotion that manifests itself when that devotion is is called to the carpet, so to speak. I don't know how many cliches I can fit into one sermon, but there's been a lot in this one, all right? So when when the time comes, and and I actually have to act on all of the things, and, and do you want to talk about somebody who makes a lot of statements about God? It's kind of in the job description, right? So when God then calls on that, you know, are are you going to live this way? When God holds me accountable for my theology, how will I respond? 
God's expecting them to demonstrate devotion, ultimate love for Him. And it comes with a promise, does it not? I love that statement because this changes it, by the way. The statement up to this point has always been in the Lord's, the good hand of God was upon us. This note, it specifically says, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek Him. Boy, this is one of the ways where Ezra reminds us that the authors of the New Testament had only one Bible, and it was the Old Testament, right? And it seems impossible to me when I read that. I don't know if you've thought the same thing just now, but when I read that, my first thought jumps straight to Romans chapter 8. Verse 28, where Paul says, all things work together for the good. To those who love God, the called according to His purposes. It is one of the great and precious promises of God's Word that those who love God can be assured that, number one, God's ultimate plan for us is a good one, and God's ultimate good plan for us will succeed. This, this, is, this is what Ezra is faced with. Do I really believe God's going to keep His promises? Has God called the exiles to return? Does He expect us to show up in Jerusalem with all this stuff that we're taking? We'll get to that next week. With all this stuff, gold, silver, precious items, does God really expect us to get from A to B without any kind of military escort? Yes, He does. He expects His people to give a testimony that He believes, they believe, He is able to keep them and maintain them, to fulfill His ultimate purposes in their lives. And the, the, again, this is what the New Testament then brings out. Because this is the good and precious promise that is made to God's people. Now, at this point, it is important that we emphasize this. And this, this could take a lot longer to flesh all of this out. That worries some of you, all right? Don't worry, I'm not going to take the long road here. But I do, I do not want you to think, all right, so here's what I've got to do. I've really, I've really got to muster up the effort. I've got to grit my teeth, and I've really got to dig in deep so that I love God, and in response to me loving God, God does good things for me. That's not what this says. So that's good news, all right? This is not what this means. <laughs> that's good news. Because this is the overwhelming message of the Bible. This is even Jesus' own message to us. I mean, when Jesus was asked to summarize simply the law, what did Jesus say? He said, he said, well, it hangs on these two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know the benefit of that summary for us? It makes it very clear. There's no way I can keep God's law. If God expects me, to love him with all my heart, soul, and strength and love my neighbor as myself? Now, if instead he said, I need you to love you and the world with all your heart, soul, and strength. All right, good, I got that. I can nail that one. I can love me some me, okay? And I, and I can love others who love me. I mean, yeah, that's easy. That's not what he says. Love God supremely. Love others sacrificially. I look at that and think, 
(laughs) It's only two commands. I can't even keep those because this is what the law does to me. It's a benefit, by the way. It's a benefit that the law comes screaming at my pride. It reminds me, this salvation is a great salvation because it is a gift of God's grace. God does not require me to love Him and then He gives me all this good stuff. No, God did for me while I was yet a sinner something I could not do for myself and He sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and be raised from the dead and God by His Spirit does something. He convinces me of my sin. He convinces me of the gospel. He is the one who gives me life so that I might respond in repentance to the word of the gospel and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, not because I've earned it, not because I deserve it, but because God in His grace simply wants to give it to me. And that is a glorious truth. So that how do I love God? I don't love God because I muster it up. I love God because He's first loved me. And so I can be confident that if God did that at the beginning, if God took a wretch like me, If God took a wretch like you, like you, all right, I'm not apologizing for calling us all wretches here, okay, and saved you and saved me, how can I think anything but the good hand of God being upon me? and working things together for good. Now, that doesn't mean everything that happens to me is good. I don't want you leaving here thinking that. That does not mean every single event that happens to me is a good thing. But it does mean this. I can trust that God's greater plan is going to end with my glorification. That's going to happen. See, here's the good news, church. I don't know where you find yourself in this process of discipleship. I don't know where you find yourself in this process of sanctification. But I do want to encourage you today. I'm not trying to pound into you that you have to, of your own effort, somehow love God. I'm encouraging you with the fact that because God and His love in Christ Jesus has already been poured out in your heart, you can be certain, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that one day you will be just like Jesus. Oh, and that's good news. It's good news because His his greater purposes are going to be accomplished. This is what He's doing. All things work together for good to those who love God, those who are the called according to His purposes. What is His purposes? To make us like Christ. To rid us of everything that's true of death and the curse and sin so that we would reflect Jesus Christ. Now, is that going to happen on this earth in all of its perfection? No, it's not. You and I are going to struggle with the realities of sanctification. Nope, that's, that's going to be an issue that you and I have to wrestle with and we wrestle with the Lord in all of this. But we can trust that God's greater purposes will prevail. And church, let me encourage you, the plan does not just end with your glorification. The plan is not just you becoming like Christ. We sang about it earlier. The plan includes our faith becoming sight. And the the sky being rolled up like a scroll and the clouds parting and the trumpet sounding and Jesus descending and I can promise you that when that day comes it doesn't matter what a thug 
in Russia or China or a progressive in Washington is doing because Christ will reign forever. Forever. This is his good purposes. So what do we give him? We give him, we love him. We are to be devoted to him because God by his spirit has enabled this. And so let us fulfill this expectation of God, not of our own effort, but as a good gift of his grace and the result of his indwelling spirit. Let us be a devoted people. Put feet to our faith. Let the world see us living faithfully and obediently to the work of Christ in our lives, working ever toward this end goal, cooperating with the work of the Spirit in us, making us like Christ, so that the world can see us, trusting no matter what comes, God's hand is upon us. There's going to be difficult days. There's going to be good days. I don't know what day tomorrow will be, but it doesn't matter. Times may have changed, but God has not. And we can trust Him. How will you respond then to His Word? Do you love God? Are you devoted to Him? Believer, are you living in faith and in trust that God will keep all of His promises to you? To those who are here today who may not know Christ as Savior, then my appeal to you would be just that, that you would repent of your sin, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, He who died on the cross and rose from the dead, asking God to forgive you, not based on what you have done, but based on what Christ and Christ alone has done, and you can be saved today. Will you believe on the gospel this morning? If you'd like to know more about that, I'll be right down front. At the close of this service, I'd love an opportunity to speak with you more about what it means to trust in Christ as Savior. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. After I pray, we will continue to sing about the good promises of this gospel and our Savior holding us fast. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the gathering of your people. We thank you for the precious promise of your word. We thank you for our confidence in your promises made to us. We thank you, God, that that confidence doesn't reside in us and with our own power and ability. It is given to us by you and by your spirit. So may we then live in submission to it and in confidence in it. God, we we do want to know your good hand upon us so that we might be faithful to you. May we ever love you in a world that increasingly slides into greater and greater rebellion so that they may see Christ and that we pray we would see those who are who are not in Christ, be brought to faith, and those who are then brought to faith, discipled in Christ-likeness. To you we surrender ourselves, praying your spirit would bring your word to bear on our lives that we might live for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.